Welcome back to Turpentine VC, a podcast where we discuss the art and science of building successful venture firms, VC to VC. For today's episode, we sit down with Howard Morgan, the chair and general partner of B Capital. Howard is a pioneer in venture, having co-founded firms like Renaissance Technologies with Jim Simons and First Round Capital with Josh Kopelman. In this interview, we discuss how Howard picks the right people to work with, how he thinks about trade-offs at the different firms he's built, and how his experience in the last six venture cycles informs his predictions about the next 10 years of venture. Howard shares his earned wisdom with remarkable candor and offers advice to anyone who wants to build a lifelong investing career. Howard, thank you so much for joining Turpentine VC. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Eric. Glad to be here. So, Howard, you have an illustrious uh, venture capital and investing career at four different institutions that you've, you've been at over the past four decades. Why don't you give a quick tour of the four institutions that you uh, helped start or uh, were, were investing at? And what was the story that inspired you to start e- each successive one? Sure. Uh, the first was a Renaissance Technologies Corp., which uh, I started with Jim Simons back in 1982. It's known mostly as a quant shop uh, because it is the premier quant investing group. But from 1982 to 1989, when we started, half the money was in venture. And uh, Jim and I had done uh, two private companies in the late 70s and early, beginning of 1980. And uh, he was still a professor. I was still a professor. Uh, and in, in early 82, he said, well, why don't you take a leave of absence and we'll start Renaissance Technologies. I've got $70 million. I can only invest 35 in quant and we'll put 35 into venture. And so we did that between 1982 and 1989. Uh, we had a uh, top decile return, 25% IRR. Uh, fortunately, but also unfortunately, the uh, quant was returning 80, 38%. So we took the, the venture out of Renaissance. And uh, for, for the next decade, I invested a li- my own money, his money, same same physical location, and helped start Idealab with Bill Gross. And from 1996, and even through today, perhaps still on the board, uh, helped create a huge number of companies at Ideal. Uh, Bill Gross's ideas, uh, investment dollars of mine and other people's, and uh, you know, paid search, for example, uh, we created, became Overture. Uh, Google ended up paying $600 million for the patent rights. Uh, uh, we did it at a time when everyone thought paid search was evil. Uh, Walt Mossberg at Wall Street Journal at one point called it evil. Why would you allow people to alter your search results by paying for them? Uh, but we and, and Larry and Sergey all figured out that actually you would get better results, not worse results, because people wouldn't pay unless they were getting value back. So uh, we did all of that. And then um, in 1992, one of our investments was a company called Infonautics. And it was started by two people, Marvin Weinberger and Josh Koppelman. And uh, Josh... Uh, and I was the sort of lead investor. I also did some technical design for them and so on, having been a database expert. And we took Infonautics public in 96. It, it created what's called ProQuest today. In 97, 98, Josh said, gee, I want to start something else. I see how Amazon is doing. And we could sell used books for half what Amazon's charging. So I'll start half off Amazon.com. And we bought from a whole number of uh, different URLs, half off Amazon, half off eBay, et cetera. But eventually it just rolled into half.com. And half.com was quite a phenomenon. Uh, Josh is an amazing uh, entrepreneur. Uh, and uh, you know, one of the things at one of the marketing meetings at uh, 
at, at uh, half.com, somebody said, how do we get half on the map? And uh, somebody said, oh, let's get it on the map. So we went to a town in Oregon called Halfway Oregon, paid them some money and computers for all their schools to get them to change their name to half.com Oregon for a year, which they did. And uh, because we got them on the map and it was such a clever stunt, we got on the Today Show, we got all sorts of media uh, and uh, half did really well and was bought by eBay during the height of the bubble. Uh, and they pay a lot of money for it, but because it's the basis for buy it now, uh, they actually made money with it. So even though they paid a lot, the only thing they didn't get was Josh full-time. Josh was there for a year, a couple of years, like two years. He just didn't want to move west. And uh, so he came came and said to me one day in 2002, three, gee, I want to do some more angel investing. So he and I did some angel investing together. And in 04, he said, I think there's time to be able to start a seed stage fund because it cost us $5 million to get Infonautics to its first product ship. We had to buy servers, big gigantic sun machines, big Oracle licenses. We had to build our own data center. We had to hire people to run it 24-7. By the time he was building Half.com, it only cost $2 million to ship the product because you had open source software. You had much cheaper computers and you had rack spaces and people who were willing to host those machines for and, and hire the people for monitor. We realized that you could start companies cheaper. Uh, and John said, I think you could start a company for $250,000 in 2004. So we figured out a way to get some deal flow, and we started to see whether we would like it, a one-year fund called First Round Capital 2005. Uh, and over the next two and a half years, as we sort of found we liked it, uh, we we ended up hiring some partners, Chris Falick, Rob Hayes in San Francisco, Chris in, in, in uh, Philadelphia, New York, uh, ended up raising about $50 million in total for that first set of funds. And in 2007, uh, we went to the big guys, namely Dave Swenson at Yale and people at Princeton and said, we're going to do a $125 million fund. It was a little, I ended up slightly higher, 130 something, uh, to invest in seed stage. And they said the same thing to us, which was, that sounds great. We like you guys. You've got experience. You know, Howard, I was at the time 60 years old. Uh, you know, Josh, exciting entrepreneur. Uh, but if we can only put in $20 million, it can't move our needle because we got $15, $20 billion endowments. But we'll do it anyway. And let's see what what happens. Uh, and that was first round capital. And I told Josh when we started, I'll give you 10 years because, you know, I'll be 70 in 10 years and who knows what I'll want to do and what you'll want to do. And I know that funds will have, have had traditionally typically uh, difficult time with generational transition. So that's what we did. Now, first round capital two ended up with 70 companies roughly in it. Uh, roughly 68 of them returned kind of 5X the fund. Uh, you know, we uh, we had companies like uh, Square, now Block in there. Uber. Square was an interesting story because in 2005, we did Odeo, uh, which was a podcasting company. And, and the founders, Ed Williams and Biv Stone and Jack Dorsey came and said, we're giving you your money back. Apple's about to announce our product. And so we won't have any... But we'll, we'll come to you with our next deal. And the next deal, six months or less than that later, was Twitter. But they wanted 20 million free money. And we said, no, we don't do anything over 10 million free money. Sorry. Uh, so we didn't do it. I mean, fortunately, I was an investor in Union Square Ventures, which did do it. But uh, but then uh, when uh, when Jack came to us with Square a couple of years later at, at a higher price than 10 million, we said, you know, we learned our lesson. Uh, I think we'll do this one. And we did. So... Uh, so those 68 companies did, did quite well, but the 69th company was started by Garrett Camp, 
who was in our blank check club. Garrett had started Stumble Upon in Calgary. It was a web discovery company. eBay bought it. We made a lot of money, and we said to Garrett, whenever you're finished with eBay, we'll give you a desk and some money, whatever you want to start next. And so he came to us, we gave him some money, and we said, now what is this thing going to do? He said, well, I'm going to call Black Cards in San Francisco. I'm calling it Uber Cab. And, uh, and we said, well, how big is the market for, for that in San Francisco? He said, no, mates, maybe a $100 million total market. Uh, you know, He said, that's not so big, but you know, you're a good product guy. Get it started. He, he and Ryan Graves got it started and built, and uh, the taxi commission made us change the name to Uber. They wouldn't let us use the word cab. Uh, and three or four months later, he brought in his friend, Travis Kalanick, and uh, the rest is history. So uh, Uber returned in the order of 20x the fund by itself. And uh, then, uh, at, but Uber grew very quickly. I mean, from, from 2010, 9, 10, uh, at, at 4 million pre-money where we invested, uh, in three years, it was at 3 billion. And then it did rounds even higher. And of course, when it exited, it exited higher than 4 million uh, by, by a fair amount. Uh, then, but we invested at the same time in another company, which we turned down first. Uh, we turned it down. Chris, Chris Freilich had brought it in. Chris came back to us a few few months later or a few weeks later and said, you know, you made a mistake. I'm going to bring in my son to pitch you on this. And he brought his eight-year-old son, Max, in to pitch us on Roblox. And we did Roblox. And Roblox took from 2009-10 to 2018 to get to $100 million valuation. But when Roblox went public in 22, it was even bigger than Uber. And so in the end, Princeton and Yale each got a billion dollars back, which in a $20 billion endowment moves you need. <laughs> uh, Yale's is bigger now, but but still, we got, we got awards from them and so on. But I did stick to my a promise to stay, to do 10 years. And so in year eight, nine, we started figuring out how to do the transition. Uh, and I stepped back and I got a lot of, you know, emails of, would you join my seat fund? And the answer to that was, no, been there, done that. I'm still an advisor first round. I'm still, you know, good friend, big, big LP, et cetera. But I got a call from another friend, Raj Ganguly. Raj had been uh, at Penn. He was an M&T student. He was an entrepreneur, built a company, sold it to KeyBank, then went to McKinsey, then went to the Harvard Business School, where in the same building he lived in, there was this, uh, two young kids, Mark Zuckerberg and uh, Eduardo Saverin. And he became friends with Eduardo. And after Harvard Business School, Raj went and helped start Bain Capital Asia and was based in Singapore. And Eduardo had moved to Singapore in 2009, 10, something like that. Because uh, his, his wife's. And, uh, and started investing with him. And so they came to me in 2016 and said, we're starting a fund. And uh, I want to tell you about it. And I, I said, Sure, come on in. I'll give you a half hour. And uh, three hours later, uh, I said, "Great, I want to be a big LP in this fund." And they said, "That's that's not what we want. We want you to, we want you to chair the fund. We want you to basically help us make new mistakes and not repeat the mistakes you made building Renaissance and Ideal Lab and First Round Capital. So we'll get a head start." And the three things that excited me about B Capital and the opportunity was. First of all, it was East Asian later, so I wasn't competing with first round. I didn't really want to compete with first round for at least for, for a while. Eventually, we, we started an early stage fund. Um, secondly, it was B2B focused. First round had done a lot of B2C. And for me, I just like learning new things every day. And so spending more time on B2B, I, I, I had worked as a consultant for the big giant Fortune 500s when I was a professor for 15 years. I had been uh, in the 2000 
10 period for about 13 years on John Deere's Global Advisory Board. So I understood big companies in B2B, and they were getting digitized, and there was huge opportunity. Uh, third, it was global. It was going to be headquartered in LA and Singapore uh, with offices in Delhi. We now have offices in Delhi and Bangalore and Jakarta and Beijing and Hong Kong and LA and San Francisco and New York. So pretty global, although a uh, 60 to six, two-thirds of the fund goes into the U.S., the other the rest goes overseas, and there's great opportunity there. And finally, the icing on the cake was it was a partnership with the Boston Consulting Group, BCG. And I spent a lot of time with Rich Lesser, who was then the CEO of BCG. He's now the chairman, uh, understanding why they would do a venture fund, because they had gotten burned in the bubble. In 2000, they did a venture fund with IBM and J.P. Morgan. It was a complete disaster. And he said, no, no, we need to have companies that we can show our clients new technologies that are actionable. That where, so we want companies, if you're in a later stage where you're going to be, that we can say to a client, here's an interesting company, here's a new technology, and we want you to try it. And they could try it. And so the relationship is a very strong one. It, that's grown to a third of my time, which if you ask my wife, she said that means eight hours a day. Uh, but... Uh, but, I, but that's what we've been doing. And in 2021, we decided we could start an early stage fund. So I gave up my first round affiliations in 21, but we've done a number of, of deals which we've co-led with, with first round. So like, your relationship is still very, very positive. So that's kind of the background of how I got here to be capital, which now, by the way, has about six and a half billion under management. That's a great overview. And, and talk about B Capital. When you think about global investing, how do you get comfortable uh, sort of understanding not just sort of the macroeconomic, but also the geopolitical situation in this kind of crazy geopolitical uh, environment. It feels like you have to know so much more to be able to to invest there, and uh, things fluctuate so much. How, how do you um, think about um, building a, a global firm in that way? Sure, I mean it, the geopolitics are very critical. Obviously, China. We didn't start with China. We went into China in twenty one. Uh, we hired. Hired a senior partner there, and with SoftBank uh, China, and we we still felt and still feel as huge opportunities in China, even staying far away from any of the geopolitically sensitive areas. Uh, we don't do hardware, so we're not doing chips. Uh, we don't do military technologies. We don't do dual use technologies, but we do a lot of things like the, the biggest auto parts distributor uh, in China, which just went public on the Hong Kong exchange, too, uh, and textile marketplace and and. Uh, and uh, something called Geek Plus, and you know, use to give give users uh, advice. So it's very it's very tricky. So India, Indonesia, Singapore is a lot simpler uh, in the sense that there's great technology. There are giantly explosive markets. India is now population wise bigger than China, and uh, and in India there's a billion people now with cell phones and bank accounts on their cell phones and. Uh, government has finally created an environment in India which has much less corruption than, than it did 20 years ago. And so we've been taking advantage of that. But you do have to be careful of the geopolitics all the time. You you, you don't want to, for example, we, we were we did a fair amount of stuff in what, three crypto areas. And we were very careful in India in particular, which where the government was not pro-crypto, to be, to be uh, careful of what kind of things we would do there. Uh, we stayed most most of the, in China, for example. We stayed out of education completely because we knew that the government was concerned about education uh, for several reasons. One was 
you know, the parents were spending too much money on it. Uh, two was they had 400 million people learning English, but they were learning English with American materials and American value systems. And President Xi decided at one point, oh, he didn't like that. So he basically shut down online education in China, cratered the stock market for all those companies. We were fortunately, you know, I'd stayed away from things like that that can get sensitive. So we're mostly B2B, you know, real industrial kind of stuff over there. And we have to be we have to be cognizant at all times that there are geopolitical risks. And you have to be cognizant of how can you get your money out. Most of these countries, you can always put it in. Can you get it back out again if, if you have a big win? And right now that's possible. So we're, we're pretty comfortable with that. But I would say that this, in 2012, essentially all the unicorns in the world were in Silicon Valley. In 2023, they have about 20% of the unicorns, and the rest are widely spread. New York and LA and Austin and Chicago and Delhi and Bangalore and obviously all over China and a couple in Europe, not that many. But it, but the technology has democratized. It's all over the place now. You can build companies anywhere. So the the theme that you chose was was global. I'm curious when you if you had to pick a different theme. Uh, you know, maybe when you do ten years at B Capital in, in your 80s, um, or when you think about uh, you know emerging managers, w- what are other themes or angles of building a venture firm that you're particularly uh, excited about, or you think are are still ripe or uh, ha- have opportunity? Remember, I'm B- one third B Capital, one third is family office, and my family office has seeded or funded uh, almost thirty uh, underrepresented minority managers, women and underrepresented minorities. So. I feel that that's a great place to build a venture fund because just as there there are unicorns built now in, in cities that never had them, uh, you know, and but most of the unicorns were built in the Valley in 2012. Most of the big venture companies are built by white guys, uh, you know. But now that you have people all over the world building things, women, African Americans, Indigenous people, Latinos, everyone can build, and there's brilliant talent in all of those uh, places, and. Some of these firms are seeing deals that I would never have seen. My networks would never have seen. So that's one important place. Second thing to say is this. When I was uh, in college in 1965, uh, I was about to go to MIT for physics graduate school. And I was advised by a very wise fellow, Dick Hamming from Bell Labs. And he basically whispered in my ear, computers, the way the graduating says plastics, and, uh, and I listened to him and I went for computer science. And, and when people ask me that today, the, the, the places I talk about are genomics or bioinformatics or something in that space uh, and longevity. Uh, because we have more and more people living longer, we want to make them live healthier. And it, the space is, is monstrous. And the final place there is space. Uh, you know, we're, we're obviously SpaceX... It's done amazing stuff, but there's a huge opportunity to invest in technologies related to space and space exploration and space utilization, not just exploration, you know, whether it's asteroid mining, whether it's communication satellite technologies, whether it's going to Mars. I'm not, I, I'm not going, I don't expect to anyway, but uh, I don't doubt that we will, we will in fact do that. Hey, we'll continue our interview in a moment after a word from our sponsors. Over 100 startups launched today. Do you know who they are? If you're not seeing interesting startups, none of your downstream processes matter. 
How you source deals at the earliest stages could be your most consequential investment. Harmonic is the most complete startup database, finding new companies as soon as they incorporate and tracking them through IPO. You can create a search tailored to your investment thesis. In one search, filter over company data, including venture stage, industry, and geography, founders and operators backgrounds, and traction metrics like headcount changes, social media audience, and web traffic growth. Importantly, Harmonic instantly surfaces warm connections to help you connect with founders. The results are delivered on autopilot, wherever you most need them over Slack, email, or via API, directly into your CRM, integrating seamlessly into your software stack. Learn why Craft, Bedrock, NEA, and hundreds more. Trust Harmonic's data by visiting harmonic.ai or use the link in the description. Make sure you mention our podcast, Turpentine VC, during your demo. Are you not as bullish on, on AI or crypto for, for venture opportunities? Uh AI usually AI is in everything. AI is table stakes, so it's not it's not a question of being AI. It's just that what you've got to build a company to doing something. A, one fundamental foundational AI technology, large language model stuff. That's where the giant players right now. But using that technology in a vertical area for a company that has a proprietary data source to train on, that we're doing a lot of. And we have three investments in AI for drug discovery. Uh, uh, one, one called Adamwise in the Bay Area, one called in Silico, which is based in Shanghai and London and New, and New York, and uh, uh, another called Hi-Fi Bio. We think they're using AI with huge libraries of data about molecules. They're, they have drugs going into clinical trials and so on. So yeah, I'm very bullish on AI, but I don't, I don't want to invest in the fundamental technologies of AI. I want to invest in the companies using AI uh, higher up in the stack, if you will. So I'm not buying the operating system company. Uh, I polo in my private portfolio. I certainly continue to accumulate Microsoft stock. I think they're going to be a big winner here. Uh, but that's one area. And the other area is in longevity uh, space. And in crypto, uh, Josh and I bought our first Bitcoin in 2012 at ninety dollars. Uh, you know, a year later, we I don't know what he did, but I sold ten percent of it for nine hundred, so I was in for free. Uh, and I still have those bitcoins. I watched them go to sixty-five thousand and five thousand and twenty, whatever it's today, twenty-eight thousand, so on. Um, I'm a believer in crypto, but it's a long haul. So I, I've done some recent investments uh, with it, something called Ordinals, which puts uh, sort of like NFTs on the Bitcoin blockchain, not using Ethereum. Um, so uh, I'm an investor in Lightning, which uh, is able to speed up the Bitcoin blockchain so that you can actually use it for transaction purposes. Uh, but on the venture side, we're not doing we're not doing a lot of, we are in B-Capital, we're in Falcon X, which is a Bidro Prime broker. We're in some fixing shovels in that space, but we have not been playing uh, the token game. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, you mentioned earlier that when B-Capital invited you uh, to, to join, one of the things they said is you'll learn from uh, the the things you would have done differently. Now, obviously, with with first round and and the others, you you've had immense success. But there's always things we we would have done differently or, or mistakes we made. What, what, what's something that that you can share that maybe you would have done a bit differently that might be helpful to emerging managers out there? Is or or or, or uh, yeah. No, I, I get the question. I mean, I think look, one of the things that worked well was first round was a multi location fund that tried to operate as a single fund. So. We got. We were in video conferencing very early, 2008. We, we went through every video conferencing system possible. I ended up on Zoom by 2015, 14, really, uh, which was the best of it. Uh, 
At B Capital, we operate as a global fund. So our investment committee meetings are typically 5 p.m. Pacific on Monday, 8 p.m. Eastern, 8 a.m. Singapore and China, which means that everybody who was on the call, all the partners, are probably on in their home because at those times of day, and they're, they're probably in home. So, so COVID was no difference to us. Everybody was still working from home, still on Zoom, and we built a Zoom culture, and I, and I had seen some of the mistakes in building those cultures, and so we had some rules about, you know, you have to have your camera turned on, because if your camera's not turned on, you're probably doing something else, at least partially. Uh, you know, you we uh, make everybody speak and rotate and so on. So a, a lot of things about that kind of culture, I think, were lessons that I had learned that we would have uh, taken too long to learn. Uh, a lot of lessons about how to make sure that you're getting the unvarnished opinions of the people on your investment teams. Um, when we started first found, we, when we first brought in additional partners to, to Josh and I, we realized that they were starting to hang back and try to wait to see which way we thought. And, uh, you know, we, we said, you know, we, we hired you. So, so we went to a system which a lot of firms have ended up going to, what Capital certainly does, where you have to put a written vote in before this discussion. And you have to put your questions in and you have to rate. And that way everybody sees, you know, sort of open as to how they really feel about the particular deal. And then you have a lot of discussion about those issues. But you're, you're not able to hide and, and say, I wonder if Eduardo wants to do this deal. I Maybe I'll wait to see what he says. No, you can't do that. You have to commit early. And I think that's an important lesson that uh, that a lot of firms learn late. There are things about portfolio construction I wish we had done differently at first round that we're doing differently at Pete Capital and, and also the things that we learned about uh, focusing and having enough ownership in companies because the reason that first round two did so well is we had enough ownership in Uber and in Roblox so that even getting diluted in later rounds, which we did because that fund was too small to continue to keep proratas all the way through, uh, we still owned enough at exit so that they were really uh, pretty, pretty gigantic. And uh, I've tried to enforce at B Capital at different stage funds, our early stage fund, our opportunity fund, our growth funds that we maintain uh, and focus on ownership and focus on the other thing here is focus on putting the dollars out for investment sort of ratably over the fund life. If it's a 10 quarter fund for investment period and invest 10% each quarter, don't because 2021 is so exciting, invest 60% uh, in, in two quarters in 2021, which some funds did. Some funds invested 100% in 12 months, one invested 100% in nine months. The performance of those funds is not very good. You really do need to know that dollar averaging over time in a, in a venture fund is really important to do. So I, I think a first round is the best seed firm of, of all time. I do too. <laughs> My guess is that things like Y Combinator or Andreessen Horowitz, just because of their sheer AUM, uh, have have returned more more capital, maybe not the same multiples. Uh, or, uh, but I, I guess I'm curious why you didn't, start an accelerator to compete with Y Combinator or why you, you didn't you guys go multi-stage um, and and sort of collect more more AUM when you guys had the opportunity given your brand is so great. We we had we had that the op- at, at first round we had the opportunity. But Josh and I both felt that we were doing something really well. Uh, we saw Andreessen, you know, they they 
they built the platform team, you know, copying from us and, and, and trying to help how you help entrepreneurs grow things. If you have a smaller fund and you have a big winner, you get carried much faster. So from a personal economics point of view to the partners, uh, we were not in it for management fees. We were in it for carry. We were both big LPs in our funds. And if you're a big LP in the fund, what you want to get to is return and carry, and you don't worry about the management fee. When you get as big AHs now and others, they're at where, where you do look at the, the giants, the Black, Black Rocks and the Carolinas. The management fees are much more important to them. And that takes your eye off the ball of trying to find great investments, uh, investments they're going to have. So we were not focusing on, on AUM. In fact, first rounds, the first fund that they did is over 220 million, which is their latest fund, which I think is around 500 million. And that's only because entry prices were going up and they, wanted, they just felt they had to be able to compete a little bit better. But it's never been an AUM game at first round. And, and uh, we had the brand, but we didn't have the desire. We, we, were, we were doing quite well, and we figured if we did really well, as we did with Fund 2, obviously, uh, where I was a, a significant LP, and so was Josh. You, you're a significant LP in a fund that returns 25, 30, 35, 40x. That, that's, that's enough to, to make you happy, uh, and enough to, to, to have the rest of the people in the firm get good, good bonuses and so on. Um, but I, I will admit, you know, a lot of people went the AUM route. And uh, now at B Capital, because we're doing later stage investing, uh, we do need much more capital. So, but uh, even there, we don't we don't expect to go for Blackstone's trillion dollars. I mean, you know, we're at six and a half, seven billion now. Maybe we'll be ten billion. Um, but we have a lot of people. We have we've always, and this is something that I really credit Josh for. When we started first round he was willing to put out money to, to build a company uh, sort of a year, two year, one or two funds rather ahead of management fees. So we, and same thing at B Capital with Eduardo, we're able to put out and hire way ahead of what management fees would be. And, uh, and that lets us do a much better job for the LPs. But of course we're big LPs, so we're doing a better job for ourselves. Uh, you know, there, there is uh there is a group uh, of funds that are basically they don't they don't really worry about the investment performance because their costs are covered. The management fees cover everything. If you if you realize that you really need to have some wins, then you act maybe a little differently. Maybe you take different kind of risk. Yeah, and and so when you look at how the asset class has changed, you've been in it for forty years. There have been times that were better to invest, times that were worse to invest. T talk about where we are now as, as it relates to that and what have the fluctuations, what would have made the asset class a, a better opportunity or versus, versus not a great opportunity? And how do you think about that now? Well, a couple of things. Uh, you know, I've been through a number of cycles, probably five or six cycles uh, in the economy and, and in venture capital. Um, and it was a much smaller industry in the 80s and 90s, uh, obviously, than it is today. Um, there were fewer startups being created. So I, the opportunity right now, because we hit the recession and because there's less money going out, is tremendous at the early stage. Amazing early stage opportunities. Early stage does really well in bad times because it takes five to eight years for those companies to mature and they then mature in the good times. So they get even paid even more in the good time. In the, in the bubbles... Early stage gets crazy valuations. And I, I remember in 2000, 
2007, we put out a note to the first round LPs and said, our average entry price has tripled from when we started. We used to go in at 250 and now it's 750. And the exit prices, if you look at the way most companies exit, which is have not tripled. They've gone up 25%. So the simple math says your returns are going to go down, you know, by a, by, a, by half or a third. Just because unless you pick exactly the right companies, on the averages, things are much worse. So this is a good time to get in. We're getting in at decent prices now. Uh, I think funds today are, are, are pretty good. What we had was an unusual period of zero interest rates. And when you have zero interest rates, people who want return go for riskier asset classes, which venture capital is traditionally considered. So way too much money came into venture capital. And that too much money was used by people who had very little experience. And they did two stupid things. Uh, one uh, was that they bid up the prices to crazy prices. Uh, and we're seeing, the, we're seeing that happen now with companies having to do new rounds, uh, gigantic down rounds, uh, or huge amounts of structure or whatever. And that's very, very bad. Uh, so, you, you know, you see. And the second thing they did was they tried to do the whole thing themselves. They said, we're going to muscle out everyone else. We have, a, we have so much money to invest, we want to be the only investor. And I remember in 2002 being around a number of board, uh, board meetings where uh, we were, we were at, at Idealab, we were very careful to have multiple investors. So we had other people to call on when times got bad. Now times get bad and you've got one investor and that investor's advert and you say, but I need something. Who else can I go to? Because there's no one else there. There's no other players. So uh, venture capital, if you play it, I think, correctly, you do want good partners over time. You could want people that you're going to co-invest with. So you don't, you don't own 30% of the company. You own 15 and let 10% go to somebody else and a couple percent go to some really influential and, and uh, helpful uh, angels and strategics and so on. And we lost that lesson. Too many players lost that lesson during the bubble. And companies are suffering as a result. And, and so when you look out at the next five to 10 years, do you expect the landscape to shift back to what it was in the previous decade? Do you expect a lot of capital to come out? Um, w- w- you know, we go back to basics a bit, or are these sort of massive AUM firms here to stay and only going to continue to get bigger and bigger until they sort of compete with BlackRock it's, it's, or Blackstone, et cetera? W- w- what do you think? Look, I, I don't think we'll go back to the old days. I don't think that's, that's not the way finance works, right? Uh, I do think we'll have shakeout. Look, in, in 2000 bubble, we, we went from 1,400 venture firms to 800. Uh, I think a lot of the solo GP funds that have been created in the last four or five years are not going to be able to raise their next funds. Uh, I think the, the advantage on the on the fund accumulation side is to the bigger players uh, as long as they can figure out how to perform. So I think that's here to stay, uh, that there'll be bigger players. I don't know that we'll get BlackRock or Blackstone-sized players uh, I don't think there's enough investable company creation, uh, certainly not in, just in the U.S. alone. Uh, we're global. for the, one, That's one of the reasons is we think there's a lot of creation outside of the U.S. to absorb that much capital. And, and we don't want to get into another 2021 where the bubble, where the prices are so high that you can't really make money. You can't make the, the kind of significant returns. And you'll always do better at early stage. And early stage companies don't need that much money. Uh, you know, one of the other things that happened in 21 was companies got too much money, which they didn't need uh, just because it was being forced on them. I, we had one company 
we had put in a term sheet at $450 million, pre, you know, pre-money. And they called us back and they said, X giant fund has just offered us $600 million. And we said, no, that's, that's crazy, but okay, maybe, we can, uh, uh, maybe we'll match it. And they called us back that, well, they came in at $620 million plus $200 million uh, credit line, so we're taking it. And we said, go with God. <laughs> you know? uh, and then uh, there was a down round. Course, uh, you know, it's and they had way too much money that uh, it, it it just it's just it's just uh, a le- le- that lesson keeps getting learned. But I don't think that we're going to see all these funds go away. I think the big funds have figured out how to operate in this environment. They'll have they have scout funds. They have small. They're they're, they're investing further across the spectrum. Uh, look, you take take the great a great fund Sequoia, one of the best performing funds ever, and also a terrific fund, and. Even they have figured out that for them, global, which was a very different kind of global, which was basically having a China operation, an India operation, an Israel operation at one point, which they uh, that was creating too many conflicts because the India team would want to invest in a company and the USC would say, oh, no, we've got one like that here in the States. So for them, it, it didn't make sense. Whereas what we do at B Capital is we look for companies that can globalize. We look for an India company we can take to the US or a US company we can bring to to India and elsewhere, and uh, so operating a little differently in, in that mode. And I do think that the global space is a place where there's huge and continuing huge opportunity because it's been underserved by venture capital. Some people say that the way that YC has continued its sort of reign is is global, actually, because um, you know they had an arbitrage originally around technical founders and helping them get or young technical founders helping them get connected, but then kind of it became much easier to to get a network to learn and uh, now the opportunity has been getting global founders connected uh, you, you mentioned why you guys didn't go the route of multi-stage but say more about the accelerator i mean after all yc is the first round as well meaning they they invest first and first round you know invests early but they just do higher volume and via this kind of you know uh, sort of three-month cohort model what what why didn't you guys consider doing something similar or, or yeah how do you think about that we well we, we look we, we were we were obviously uh looking at it and investing in yc companies from the very beginning uh at the beginning they really were uh a, a strong positive signal about an entrepreneur there were tiny cohorts uh with some great companies in them and and even there you know you make mistakes right i mean josh and i uh each asked our wives uh whether uh, they would be willing uh, or interested in us making another couple hundred dollars a night by putting somebody on our couch. Uh, and uh, they said at NFW, we were not going to let anyone in our house. And so we had to tell Brian and Nate that we weren't going to do Airbnb. Uh, you know, you, but we looked at, at, I had done obviously with Ideal Lab, one of the first incubators. And so I understood what it took to help companies. And YC's approach was a good approach that worked at that time in Silicon Valley pretty well. We were innovating in different ways at first round. Uh, we were innovating with our first round networks and and our and we did a lot of training of people. So first round ran a number of courses to train angels, train people in angel investing, so that those angels would would get us deal flow. Uh, we do train entrepreneurs. First round, I like say I say we. I still feel very close, but uh, first round does train entrepreneurs. They ran a number of classes for female entrepreneurs over the last eight or nine years, uh, and have developed a lot of things that would get them some of the benefits of what YC gets without building an accelerator 
and all that that entails. Now, YC then went from small classes to hundreds to thousands, and we think the colony has suffered somewhat. We've done YC deals in Indonesia, uh, in India, places we see them. It's it's not nearly as strong a signal uh, as it used to be, uh, because there are other accelerators, there are other sources of, of uh, seed capital for people. So, uh, but we didn't do it because we were doing other things, and uh, we didn't feel we needed to do it, and we could get access to the best YC companies uh, because the first round brand and the first round support was there. And so, yeah, we we missed the pre-seed. You know, remember we went into it; it was seed stage and then a seed A B. Then you got pre-seed and you got pre-pre-seed, you know, that people going in. Uh, and uh, we, at first round, stuck to pretty much where it was supposed to be, which was seed only. They've gotten to a little more A's nowadays. Is, is the, is the, that makes sense. Is the insight of multi-stage firms or the reason why, you know, firms like Thrive, which start out small, have gone multi-stage, basically this idea that there's kind of a new set of LPs that needs to plow a ton of capital and isn't as multiples sensitive as there, there were previously, or t- talk a little bit about that. There are, yeah, there's, there's a couple of kinds of LPs. There are LPs for whom, uh, you know, who are IRR focused, right? And uh, IRR implies, assumes that you can reinvest money at the same rate, but, uh, but they're, the, they're, they're focused on IRR. So if you invest late, but you get a 2x multiple in a year, that's an amazing IRR. You get a 2x multiple in two years, it's a 40% IRR. So the the, the multi-stage fund do have LPs who are looking for, for 20, 20 to 30% IRR, which you can get if you're investing late enough so that your exits are likely to come in two to three years. Uh, and then at your MOIC, your multiple domestic capital, you know, two to three is fine for those kind of funds. Yeah, at, at first round and in our early stage fund at G Capital, I'm hoping that we get closer in the four to six range and occasional occasional outliers like first round two with that, which is obviously maybe once in a lifetime. But, uh, you know, it, it, you you can get that at that kind of multiple. But, but most of the big capital, the big pension funds, the giant endowments, they're, they're perfectly content getting a 3x over five years. And if you have large amounts of capital to deploy, that's kind of what they have to do because you can't, they can't deploy that much capital at the super early stage. It's just not, not feasible. And when you think about your, you as an LP, given your family office, how do you think about what you're optimizing for and what you care most about as you think about your portfolio allocation? So most of, yeah, most of what I've done is very early stage. Uh, I'd like to say, 30 of the funds are, are, are focused on doing some good. So I'm hoping those funds return 2X or 3X. Uh, I'm not really worried about the time frame, but I'm bringing more people into the business and getting deal flow that, that I would not have otherwise seen that can then be leveraged in the later stage at, at the P capital. Uh, that's one, one piece of it. The other is I'm able to invest in areas that we don't do at B capital, people doing hardware, people doing space technology, which we haven't been doing yet, things of that sort. And that's, that's what I get is, is to learn about those things. And then a lot of, a lot of stuff that I do in the, that fund is I see quant players. I see crypto quants, uh, you know, they're doing, doing trading and, and that has allowed me to work in the crypto area without being impacted in terms of what Pigapo would do. And so imagine if you were 
you know, in your 30s again in 2024, uh, starting a, a, a new venture firm, or if you were, you know, uh, with Josh again, uh, where you were 20 years ago, but it was 2024. And it wasn't like there was a dearth of seed funds as you know, is first round has you spawned tons of, uh, you know, fellow seed funds. How would you think about your your approach if you were starting in a, if you were starting over and starting merging fund today, um, where you didn't have maybe tons of tons of experience? Would you would you do one of the verticals that you mentioned earlier with space or bioinformatics or is there another? Um, would you go earlier or yeah? No, two things I would do. One is vertical, and the other is global. So I would I would do it in a vertical. For example, there's a huge amount of space technology now coming out of India. The Indian government, uh, you know, has landed uh, on the moon. They've they've uh, caught the technology. Uh, there's obviously uh, always great technologies coming out of Israel uh, in various, not just in the security area, but in the bio biotech area. Uh, a lot of medical device stuff coming on coming out there. Uh, I've been doing a lot of investing in brain computer interface technologies. Uh, that's an area that there is only one other focused fund I know that's focused on those kind of things. I've got a couple of investments, one in B Capital. With, very, very excited about precision neuroscience. To be fair, every venture capitalist I know makes exceptions. So whatever their focus is, if they see a real great opportunity, they're going to figure out a way to squeeze it in and shoehorn it in. Totally. I, I think there's there's a lot of people listening to this podcast who are investors, um, and some of them may be kind of in between things and wondering, hey, is, is now even a good time to be in the asset class? It's, it's hard. And I, I think what I'm hearing from you is, Hey, it might be harder to raise money, but if you're doing seed, it's a it's still a good time to make money. So um, if you if you're if you're passionate about yeah if you're passionate about it, um, you know you're not born in the wrong time as a, as an investor, so to speak. You heard me exactly right, which is it's really tough to raise money right now. So if you're starting a new fund and you don't have a big track record, it's going to be really tough. But it is really a great time to be investing money, and so. What I advise people, you know, in that case, is figure out how to do a couple of angel investments that will show the people you want to raise money from what your investment taste is, and then then you go out and try to raise on that as a, a mini track record, if you will. And and what about um, studios or incubators? Right, you, you had that experience, of course, with 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 Edilab and those Bill Gross's ideas. Um, what are your thoughts on on that space in general? Do you expect it to advance a lot? Do you, do you find it challenged? What do you think about? It? I haven't seen it change much. I mean, I've I've been helping out the guys at the ERA in New York, where they're in their twenty sixth cohort. Uh, you know, we've done a couple of investments over the years in companies that come out of there. TechStars obviously still going strong all over the place. Uh, YC with its, its various expansions, although they pulled back their continuity fund, so they they they've made changes as their leadership has changed over the years. Um, you know, I, I think there's so much happening at the university level, at the university campuses, uh, where students can get things started, that I don't think we need more accelerators or more incubators. I think we have probably too many right now, because it, it means that people who otherwise wouldn't get funded can, can hang on for one or two years you know, bouncing between different incubators. And in a, for an idea that really doesn't doesn't make it, so I'm relatively skeptical. I would say on on how many. Do, I don't think we need more for sure. We probably need somewhat fewer. When you think about the um, just as a sort of 
you know, capital allocator allocating to venture versus other uh, other asset classes. Um, in terms of the macro, like, h- h- how do you think about that? In terms of what what should be your your allocation to venture and whether you should dial that up or dial that down? Uh, I know that some of you, your efforts is um, you know focused on on it being you know uh, philanthropic. But let's say you were solely focused on fi- financial, uh, you know, maximization. H- how do you think about the trade-offs between venture and other cl- asset classes, uh, investing in them as it relates to the macro? Well, first of all, it depends on your time horizon, right? I you know I, I, I'm 77. Uh, you know, uh, venture funds pay out in 13 years. I'll be 90. Uh, will I see those results? I don't know. Uh, <laughs> my kids will. My grandkids will. But. Uh, so one of the things you have to think about in any investment is the time horizon for that investment. And I think that you have to have a ladder uh, of, of investments with different time horizons. So I have public stock investments and bond investments. I have very actively traded quant funds that are very liquid, you know, basically monthly liquidity, some of them daily liquidity if you really want it. Uh, and I, I think at least half of my portfolio needs to be in relatively liquid stuff just to be able to meet the capital calls from the illiquid stock. Now, in 2023, I had $20 of capital call for every dollar distribution in the venture fund, right? Normally, it's three to one, four to one, two to one. It's a very illiquid environment right now, and you have to be able to meet that. So to do that, if you're sort of looking at your overall capital allocation, you've got to make sure you have enough liquidity. You outlive too. You've got to have money coming in to, to live on, but enough liquidity to meet capital calls, to meet short-term uh, problems that can arise, whether it's medical expenses or whoever. So most, you can't go, you shouldn't go too overboard with a, an, an asset class like venture. I'm on the investment committees at Cornell University and New York Public Library. And, you know, we have allocations to venture in the sort of venture and private equity in the 10 to 25% range. And that I think is about right. And I don't, I think and some individuals could go a little higher, but I wouldn't go above 30 percent because it just takes too long to pay out you mentioned you're you're 77 what um what inspires you to keep going uh to t- keep starting new uh new venture firms uh to to keep uh to keep investing to keep working so much i'm a lifelong learner i mean i like i like meeting new people you stay young you know when i was a professor at the university i used to joke that i i stayed roughly 21 because i had to know the music i had to know the cult pop culture for the 20 19 to 21 year olds around me when you get into venture, you turn 27 or 28 uh, because the people are a little bit older and it's a little different cultures and so on. Uh, when you're in the venture capital firms, you maybe get into your 30s because the partners continue to get older and, uh, as things happen. Uh, so that's fine. I mean, uh, 30s are fine. I just don't want to get to my 60s uh, in that sense. I want to stay uh, as young as I can by being around people who are younger, who are excited about what they're doing. And venture capital, my... Uh, my uh, the idol is Alan Patrikoff right now, Blue Jade 9, still doing venture with Black Tie Partners. Pierre Lamond, who's 94, 95 with Eclipse, still coming in a couple of days a week working at Eclipse. This is a field where if you love what you're doing, you can keep doing it for a long time. You have to stay healthy, hence the longevity. Let's say we're... we're- we're having a conversation a decade from now, which I hope to be, uh, you know, talking about venture. Do you? I mean, you've been in it for forty years. Do you expect the asset class to be kind of similar, and maybe there's some new names, but it's not like software fundamentally changed or AI fundamentally changes or how venture is done. Um, but that it, you know, people say venture hasn't changed that much in, in thirty years. Do you, do you expect that to continue to, to to be the case? 
I do think AI will change venture. I, I think it will change a, a lot of the analysis that we do on companies. Uh, it will help us with that. It will help us with sourcing. You know, we've always, the great venture capitalists have always been great intelligence operatives. I, I remember we used to, at one point, we monitored Bill Gurley's Twitter feed to see who had just followed him, what new people followed Bill and what new people Bill followed to try to see if there were entrepreneurs who had met with him that day that we could then say, oh, wait a second, st- they must be starting a company. You should talk to them, right? And with AI now, you can pick up a huge number of signals as to who's starting companies to try to get at people early enough in, in, the, in their funding. And that's going to make a difference. I think it'll make a difference in later stage venture in, in doing the analyses of companies and so on. But uh, will it fundamentally change? And it's not, it's not going to be machine-based investing for venture. Still going to have people in it who will be augmented tremendously by Gen AI. At least Gen AI will write very nice pass letters because the key job in venture capital is like, I tell my daughter, I said, what do you do? I said, well, I talk to people about their companies. 99% of the time I say no, but you have to say no politely and maybe helpfully. So they'll come back to you with their next idea, which might be the right one. Lastly, it feels like you have a knack for picking the right partners um, you know, over four institutions, uh, but you know, both Rentec, Idealab, First Round, B Capital. You, you've worked with exceptional people, kind of as they were developing or, or sort of you know in, in their prime or entering their prime. Um, what is your superpower there uh, around why you've been able to consistently pick amazing people at the right time to work work with them? Well, you know, it's interesting because I always have said if I were to write write an autobiography, it would be pick great partners. Uh, my wife of 56 years says my first one of those. Um, my superpower in that is uh, a sign that was on Harry Truman's desk, uh, which said, uh, basically, you can accomplish anything if you don't care who gets the credit or the blame. And uh, as long as you don't need to take the credit for everything you do, but you're willing to have partners who you're willing to let them take the credit, even though you know you influenced them or nudged them in the right direction, you can accomplish a lot. And and they and they do with the hard work, and you just uh, push them in the right direction. So I think I think it's been a little bit of humility in some sense that's allowed me to find great people, work with them, and they know that I'm not going to try to steal their limelight. Uh, and, and I want to help them shine. In fact, and I'll just I'll just take the money at the bank. Yeah, that's a that's a great note to to close on. You can do uh, a ton if you don't care who gets the, the credit or the blame. Uh, Howard, thank you so much for for coming to the podcast and sharing your uh, hard earned wisdom with us. Thank you, Eric. Been very, very enjoyable. Take care. Turpentine VC is a podcast from Turpentine, the network behind Moment of Zen and Econ 102. If you liked the episode, please leave a review in the Apple Store or rate us on Spotify. Hey, everyone. Eric here. At Turpentine, we're building the first media outlet for tech people by tech people. We're the network behind the show you're listening to right now. We have a slate of hit shows across a range of topics and industries, from our AI and investing cluster of podcasts, to shows that drive the conversation in tech with the most interesting thinkers, founders, investors, and influencers, like Econ 102 with Noah Smith. We're launching new shows every week, and we're looking for industry-leading sponsors. If you think that might be you and your company, email me at ericaturpentine.co. That's E-R-I-K at turpentine.co, and let's partner together.